Okay, tonight we will be looking at 2 Kings chapter 8, the first few verses, as we look at a story concerning the Shunammite woman, Elisha the prophet, Joash the king of Israel, and Gehazi, who would have been afflicted with leprosy by this time. Elisha's former assistant went from hanging out with Elisha to now hanging out with the king of Israel. Uh, he's that kind of a guy, right? Okay, so he's got the leprosy, but he's there in the palace with the king. It's a very interesting story. We have a famine, and tonight our message is faith in the famine. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 8, 2 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Kings Chapter 8, verse 1, 2 Kings. If you have a Bible, if not, it's pretty simple text, so I'll read it out to you. The, it, the kingdom of Israel is divided in two right now. We know that. There's a southern king, the Judah king, and then there's a northern king, and this is all going on. This is what the whole book's about. And so with that background, we read, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, which, of course, is the Shunammite woman from a couple chapters previously, earlier on in the book. And he said to her, Arise and go, you, your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it'll come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went from her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. It came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done not happen, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was a woman whose son Elisha had restored to life from her house and restored to life. So appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman. This is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. We've been talking about the double portion. There's a double portion that appears negative on the front end, and there's a double portion that for sure is positive and encouraging on the back end. The double portion on the front end is there's going to be a famine. And not only is there going to be a famine, there's going to be a famine for seven years. That's like the daily double of bad news. It's one thing to have an economic downturn for like a year. Seven years is a long time. So it's not exactly news you want to hear, but it's reality. And the Lord has given this information, this intel up front early to those Shunammite women so she can take action to look out for the interest for herself her elderly husband, and her miracle son that God had given her and then raised from the dead after he had died from some type of a brain tumor or something of that sort. Elijah had revived him back to life. And again, that story was earlier on as we were in 2 Kings. Then we get the double portion again because when it's all said and done, because there's famines, but they all run their course. There's an ebb and flow on planet Earth with economies, how things work, the stock market, real estate, these kinds of things. We don't know crypto yet. The jury's out on that one. But real estate and stock market, they have an ebb and flow in human history that we can study. And if you're in the long game, is the long game. And things just have a way of playing out over the long run. And sooner or later, the famine is actually over. And in this case, it was over. And for her, God not only restored her land, which was hers, 
which would imply there probably were squatters there. We'll get back to that. But he restored what the land would have produced for seven years. In other words, he gave her the profits from the land, even though she didn't dwell in the land. She obeyed the Lord and did what the Lord showed her to do through the prophet Elisha. And then through her obedience, when it's all said and done, and the famine ran its course over seven years, she gets her property back and she gets the wealth that it generated for the seven years she was gone. Not only that, King Joash does something good again, even though he's a bad king, he does something good again because he took out the altars to Baal earlier on. He blesses her and appoints her a, a, a chief, if you will. He gives her a lawyer. He appoints her a lawyer, an advocate. Because you saw that there in verse 6. It says, the king appointed a certain officer for her saying, restore all that. He gave her a lawyer, a good one. He gave her a lawyer who got her property back, drove anyone out of there that shouldn't have been there, and made sure she got all the proceeds from what was rightfully hers from her land and what it generated. So we start with this double portion of bad news. Famine, seven years, but we end with a double portion of good news. It's your property, it's restored to you, and you get all the wealth it generated while you were gone. So these are the bookends of this story as we talk about faith in the famine. Now, there are famines in the Bible, and contextually, we do understand that famines are economic issues. It's an agriculture society in Israel, and a famine affects your pocketbook. It affects your finances. It affects your personal wealth. It's just the way it was and is in agri-societies. No rain, no food. That's just the way it works, okay? So we understand that. And so in the Old Testament, there are, and in the New Testament, there are famines, and the famines did certain things in the Bible. We learn lessons from these famines. Abraham, when he came to the promised land as Abram, he had a famine. He panicked and went to Israel, excuse me, went to Egypt. And that was not the plan that God had for him. But God preserved him in Egypt because his wife, Sarai, was obedient. And God blessed him for her. That's Bible study in its own right. Isaac, his son, in the land of promise, had a famine as well. Plus, he had the herdsmen clogging the wells that God had given to his dad, and yet he sowed during the famine. We're told during the famine, he began to sow, and he prospered and became very prosperous, and he prospered a hundredfold by sowing in the land during a famine. Then the son of Isaac, Jacob, who had his many sons, after they had betrayed Joseph, the favorite son, to Egypt, Another famine happened, and that was a seven-year famine. It was a regional famine. affected the region. It affected Israel and Egypt. And that famine tested Jacob, revealed his, his misconceptions and wrong perspective of the Lord, the heart of God, Abba Father, Jehovah Jireh. It, it was all wrong in his head, and, and God wanted to straighten that out. And so that famine reconciled the family. And because Joseph saved the family in Egypt by what he did, and the brothers who betrayed him had to go down there to get food, not knowing he was there and still alive. So we know that whole story played out when it was all said and done. Joseph passed his test. He forgave his brothers. He provided for his family, a household of 70. Jacob died in peace with joy, and the family was fed. So not only was the provision taken care of through Joseph's position of number two in the kingdom in Egypt to provide for his family in Israel during the famine, but the family was reconciled. And decades of falsehood 
and deception were all brought to a head, as painful as it was, and forgiveness and reconciliation took place. Later on in the New Testament, we see another famine there in the book of Acts, where we're told in the time of Claudius Caesar that it would affect uh, the whole earth, if you will, so that entire Mediterranean region. Because a famine can be a local thing, it can be a regional thing, and you know, it could be in the end of the age, and who knows where the planet's headed before the Lord comes back, but it, it could be global, of course, because in the last days in the book of Revelation, everyone's hungry and they'll sell their soul for a piece of bread daily. So the world actually, if you think about it, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ tells us the world's moving toward a global famine where people will sell their souls to be fed. We should never underestimate the power of hunger. And so this is the background of famines. In the New Testament, when they had the famine, what did the church do? Well, the church, in their poverty, raised funds to provide for one another. So those who had a little bit more provided for those who had a little bit less. And it's a beautiful story. It wasn't forcing them like a communist, Marxist, socialist government. It was by their volitional will and choice to provide and bless others. And that's the distinction. Christian charity is motivated from the heart by love of Christ and love for your neighbor. The two great commandments. Totalitarian governments force it on you. They don't produce anything. They take things and redistribute. And then once there's no longer anyone producing stuff, there's nothing left to take and they collapse. I think we know and understand that with human history. So it's a beautiful thing with the famine in the New Testament church because the people gave out of their poverty to look out for one another and take care of one another. It was a self-determined choice. And it showed the reality of their faith and their heart for humanity and obedience to the Lord. Now in this story, the Shunammite woman is a woman of faith. She recognized God's call on Elisha's life earlier on and said to her husband, who we're told is older, he's older, so she's, you know, there's an age difference there. We don't know exactly what it is, but he's referred to as being older in the age gap with her. And she said to her husband, you know, this guy is the man of God. We should provide a room for him as he comes and goes doing his ministry. He's like an itinerant evangelist. We should provide a place for him. And the husband said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. They had no children. So they set up a room for him and Gehazi. So as they went around doing the ministry of the Lord and there in Israel, they could stop and be refreshed there. It's always nice to have a, a, you know, a room and board, a little Airbnb action or something like that, a bed and breakfast for when you're doing the Lord's work. And that's what they had. That's what he had plus Gehazi. Because Gehazi was staying, he would be traveling with them when they stayed there. Then he said to the woman, hey, do you want an audience with the king? This is interesting. Because what does she have here? An audience with the king. He offered her an audience with the king years prior, before she actually needed an audience with the king. Elisha offered it. She said, uh, Gehazi's like, no, she doesn't need that. The one thing she doesn't have, though, because he's talking to Gehazi, his assistant, is she doesn't she doesn't have a son. And so he said, go tell her this time next year you'll have a son. And when it was declared, she goes, oh, no, don't even say that. See, she was, she was the kind of person who was afraid to get their hopes up because their, their concept of God was skewed. Our God's a blessing God, and he wants to do good things for his people. He didn't send his son to die on the cross because he wants to punish us. He sent his son to die on the cross because he wants to save us. We're told through Jeremiah the prophet, even in the worst experience that Israel ever had, God said to Israel in the Old Testament, my thoughts for you are good thoughts. Not thoughts of evil, but good thoughts of a future and a hope. But so often, because of our sin, our self-condemnation, the devil's condemnation, our failures, we 
in the human experience so often think God's against us. Of course, world religions love this because then they put people under superstition and bondage and fear, and world religions can drive off that. Christian religion can drive off it too when it's misrepresented. But God is good. David himself said, who had a heart for God, what did he say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. So the Shunammite woman was so afraid to have a son, she did, so afraid to even dream of having a son, that natural maternal instinct. She's like, no, don't even say that. She's afraid to get her hopes up. But God gave her a son. It's another one of those miracle babies in the Old Testament. He gave her a son. So can you imagine her joy when she, you know, missed her cycle and then she's pregnant, first trimester, second, third, like, like wow, like the joy. Because when people want to have children and they can't, then they do have children. It is so joyful. It is so joyful. I've been involved in these situations so many times in 30 years of ministry. It is so joyful. At the Southeast Pastors Conference in the early 90s, they're having an afterglow. And I was sitting in the back, about 1,000 people. It's a big afterglow. They're playing up front and all this stuff and playing worship. And the Lord showed me a couple in the front. And he said, they want to have a child, but she can't get pregnant. This totally came on my mind. I want you to go pray for them to have a child. Man, you better be full of faith if you're going to do that, right? Think that one through if that's you. I'm just like you. I'm like, oh, whew. Like how much faith do you have in this afterglow? I don't know. But that was a very definitive thought. I wouldn't have thought it. So it's probably the Lord. Malcolm Wilde's up there doing his thing. I'm like, okay, he's pretty Pentecostal too. So I'm like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit encouraged right now. So I go up front and I see this couple. I go, hey, Hey, but I didn't quite have enough faith. I said, I'm from Calvary Chapel, Hampton Roads, and the Lord put you on my heart. Is there something I can pray for you? And they're like, yeah, we've been sick. I'm like, okay, Lord, heal. And I pray for their sickness. And the Lord's like, wow. Like, and so I pray for them. I go, guys, I'm so sorry, but I have to say this. Have you been wanting to have a child? And the woman immediately began to sob. Oh, my faith was so strengthened. Oh, so strengthened. I was like, God's going to give you a child, and we're going to pray right now and build an altar to the Lord. We're going to pray for her to the Lord. Open your womb, and you're going to have a child. And I pray for her. A year later, they showed me that child at the same conference. Our God is able. Our God is mighty, and he's a blessing God. But it, he calls us to be saved by faith, to live by faith, to walk by faith, and step into eternity in full faith. And the moment we're not living by faith, we're living in a rut which is only depth and width compared to the grave. We're called to live by faith. All my faith was so strengthened that night. I didn't even need to see the baby the next year, but I did. Oh, she's all grown up now. She'd be a woman, an adult woman now. Isn't it wonderful being in your 60s and have stories of faith like that? What's more important is the, the stories we're going to get tomorrow. Amen? I like a story like that from the past, but I want stories for tomorrow, and so should you. So this is the Shunammite woman's world. God did give her a son, but then he ran to his father, so he's old enough to talk and communicate, so maybe he's a toddler, maybe he's first grade, second grade, but he goes, Father, Father, my head, my head, and he collapsed, and they took him upstairs, and he, he dropped dead, essentially. Maybe an aneurysm or something like that, who knows? But the woman, the Shunammite woman, like she ran up, she took her son and laid him on Elisha's bed in the guest room. Because that was the flashpoint of faith, like Jesus' tassel with the woman with the flow of blood. There's always a flashpoint of faith for us. It's always Jesus. But sometimes, you know, it's Paul's healing handkerchief that tells you it's Jesus. Or the tassel of Jesus that says he's the Messiah. 
And that bed that Elisha slept on was her flashpoint of faith for the man of God. He was out of town. Well, as the story goes, he found out that the child was sick. She went to go get him at Mount Carmel. They hustled. Gehazi put the rod of Elijah over the boy, but nothing happened. And then Elijah went upstairs, prayed over the boy, breathed on him, laid on him, breathed on him. And his life, he did it seven times upstairs, downstairs, like Jesus with Jairus' daughter in the New Testament. And his life was restored to him. And he presented the son to her. This is important. Because as you live by faith, your faith gets stronger for when you face the famine. When you had this misconceived concept that God's against you and then God gave you a son and you had your hopes up and you saw the miracle baby, but then when he died, what did she say to Elisha? I told you not to do this to me. That's actually what she said. But then when he was raised, her faith now has raised the grave. When the Lord has raised your son from the dead, you have a faith reference point that is pretty powerful for any famine in your future. And that's why it's so important to live by faith. I was talking with my wife, Jennifer, the other day about Buck, Frank Daly's kid. Buck's in high school, Newport Harbor High still. Last summer, he went to Morocco for two months doing Christian ministry as a missionary, as a teenager. Serving people in Morocco. While his dad and Jennifer went to other places like Tunisia and wherever they go in the Middle East because they go places. And I said to my wife, Jennifer, so I said, you know, the most important thing about Frank, uh, excuse me, Buck Daly is this. Whatever he does the rest of his teenage years at Newport Harbor High, that's going to be him and the Lord. And, And even if he, you know, God forbid he doesn't walk with the Lord for a while, that seed is sown in his heart. When you give a sum of your life, As a teenager, to serve the Lord that way, it's a good seed, and it will come back. It was a step of faith. Can you imagine a teenager from Newport Harbor High going to Morocco for the summer of post-COVID world in 2022? Wow, the steps of faith for that one, huh? That's huge. When our son went, Calvary Chapel High School used to, every year, take multiple missionary trips with kids around the world. Costa Rica, Timmy went. Hannah, when she graduated college, she went with the Calvary Church Tustin to Kenya and did a mission trip where they, their lives were threatened, actually, strengthened her faith. Luke went to China with Calvary Chapel High School the entire Christmas break. He came home sick. It took him a few weeks to recover from it, too. But from that, he learned Mandarin and speaks it, writes it fluently to this day. And Luke has always been sold out for the Lord since he went to OCC, from Calvary to OCC, to to GCU, Grand Canyon University. He has always been sold out for the Lord. As an executive Hyundai Corporation, he is sold out for the Lord. That's who he is. I attribute a lot to that year, that Christmas break when he was 16, and he did that. See, with young people, when they take steps of faith, you need to encourage their faith. Always. Because they're, plant, they're laying a seed, they're planting a seed for a lifetime of faith. Because when they're our age in their 60s, if you're in your 60s like I am, we want them to keep living by faith. See, 35 years of ministry, it's all been a step of faith for me. And I want the best steps of faith and the biggest ones to be in front of me, not behind me. And so do you, whether you realize it or not. We want our greatest steps of faith in front of us, not behind us. I want to be in the moment. And sometimes what brings out the best of us in our faith is not the fruitfulness and all the fun stuff, but a famine. A famine can serve a great purpose for people of faith.
Those fathers of the faith, the patriarchs, again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, they were all tested and refined by famine to be the great heroes of the book of Genesis. Those women that couldn't have children, Sarai, Rachel, Rebecca, all of them, it's faith. And here's a Shunammite woman, and Elisha says, A, famine, seven years, get on it. So as we think about this, because again, it's economic, and we've done a whole panoramic of why faith is so important now. As we think like in our own lives, we have a global recession going on, so that's a bit of a famine. We have a national economy we're not sure about. There's a lot of opinions on it. Who can know? I won't even go there on that one. We have personal impact on our lives with our jobs, our compensation, supply chain, various things, assets that go up, assets that go down, ebb and flow. We're still in a post-COVID world affected by the COVID-19 and what it, how it impacted the entire world for three years, pretty much three years, and saying, Lord, where's it all going? You can find all kinds of YouTube channels where everyone has an opinion where they think it's going. But the Lord knows where it's going. It'd be nice if Elijah just showed up tonight and told us where it is all going. <laughs> they call that insider trading. It's against the law, actually. Um, but in real estate, if you're smart enough, it's not against the law. If you figure out what real estate's doing, good for you. But if you know what stocks are doing before they do it, then that's, that's illegal, right? But the Lord sent Elijah to her, and the Bible tells us in Proverbs twice, the prudent foresee evil and take refuge, but the foolish pass on and are punished. So if the Lord gives you, the Lord's showing us insight for what to expect in the future, we'd want to respond, right? But ultimately, it's not the economic benefits from which the response of a, a tipping of the cards for a famine are. They're ultimately for the spiritual benefits, it could be both, but if you lose everything, make sure you grow in the Lord. And if you get, keep everything or get more of everything, make sure you grow in the Lord. That's the bottom line. That's what a famine's meant to do. It's meant to make us more like Christ, make us more eternal, and more focused and clear of what our life and purpose and goals and objectives are. Spiritual, eternal. And through that process, God will give us common sense. The whole book of Proverbs is common sense. But really, in the end, whatever a famine is doing with our faith, it's to make us more spiritual like Christ and to make, make us more eternal because everything God's doing, whether we have a bunch or lose it all in a famine, it's for eternal purposes. As beautiful as the Shunammite story is, the Shunammite lady story in the previous chapter plus this one, really it's about becoming like Christ and having an eternal perspective. You notice when she was told about the famine. So basically, it's very likely that we are in an uncertain economic time. And we're probably looking at, well, some people that are really smart with finances say we're, we're in a long-term period right now of downward recession. But I don't know if that's true or not. So what, again, like, what do I know? But whether we're headed for prosperity and it's all going to fix itself or whether we're headed for a challenging time that stretches us even more, it'll run its course. It, it, it will run its course. The important thing is that we grow in our faith and in our kingdom vision through it all. So if the Lord is saying to us, hey, there's, a, uh, there's an economic famine on the horizon, well, we're called to live by faith as the church of Jesus Christ. Say, okay, Lord, what does that mean to me? 
Well, look what he said to the woman. She, he said, arise. That's, when Elijah came here, he said, arise. It's another way of arise, and it said that she arose. So verse 1 says, arise, and verse 2 said, she arose. So arise is, A, arise, and arose means she did it, right? It's the first word that pops out at us in this whole thing, arise. And arise is one of my new favorite terms, the first step. Arising is the first step. The first step is realizing you need to take action. There's something you need to do. You know, I've talked about writing a book for quite some time. I actually laid a template out, a little bit of a storyboard. Well, the last couple of years, I've done this. But like, there's no book until I start writing a book. Until I sit down on my laptop, have a Google Doc, and start just going, there's no book. So you can talk about this, and you can talk about that. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He said, until Joy Brand sits down and starts writing a book, there is no book. It's just talk. It's just a thought. It's just an idea. It's just a plan. And a brilliant men and women with plans that come to nothing, there is no shortage of it. What separates people that actually get stuff done and those who don't is they get stuff done. We have to rise. When, when the Lord has shown us a difficult economic circumstance, and that is the context of this story, we need to understand, we need to be discerning and realize, okay, what does the Lord call me to do? Well, number one, to become like Christ. Number two, to see an eternal perspective over whatever's going on with me and my asset wealth management. And make sure it's all under the Lord. And number three, exercise common sense of what I need to do to make some things right. You, you, need, you, need, you need to know what you need to do. So there's the spiritual become like Christ. There's the eternal of everything moving toward that. But there's practical. And again, the book of Proverbs tells us what we need to do. Someone spoke with recently. He's like, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? And I was like, tell him, I was, hey, you know what? Being a pastor is really easy. I just tell you, look to Jesus. Because your things are Jesus things between you and Jesus. Yours is personal life decisions. And of those things, there's no short of opinion. So I'm just going to tell you right now, you need to draw close to the Lord and press into the Lord. And let his peace and his word rule and reign over you. Ah, being a pastor is easy, sort of, but not at all. Because just telling someone that, the devil wants to destroy you for it, just so you know. But it's not rocket science. Press into the Lord. That first step is so important. That first step is a step of obedience. When, when we're faced with economic hard times or financial hardship, and this is happening, and this is happening, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? It's important to take the first step. Going back to the book, I've, I've written 80 pages since November began. Once I started writing the book, I'm actually writing a book. Now I'm almost done with the first draft. But you've got to take action. You've got to take action. You got, you got to do, you got to arise. You know, we've watched so many people leave the state in the last couple of years. For many of them, it's the best decision possible. So we respect that and we've supported them in that. We've watched people stay under very difficult times to stay in the state and they found a way. It doesn't just happen. If you're a millennial or Z generation, and you want to live in Southern California, own a home, it's not going to fall out of the sky you got to fill your water pots and get your hustle on. And we'll see what the Lord does. All of our, my, the generation before me, my, our parents' generation, they had their hustle on, didn't they? And even those houses were only $18,000 in Long Beach and Carlsbad and Encinitas, and now they're like $2 million, whatever, or $1.5 or $1.2 or $800,000, whatever it is. Listen, 
They worked for Boeing and Hewlett-Packard. They worked, you know, for these, they, they worked hard in the shipyards. They worked hard in San Diego. My dad was a hardworking Marine. My dad got up early, went to work, came home and did his job. My mom did the same thing. Nothing falls out of the sky. You have to fill your water pots. We have to take action. So if there's economic difficulties in a famine coming, take action to be in front of them. Or if it's already hit you in your personal life, take action to grow in the Lord, to see eternity, and to do what's wise and smart to do to resolve those problems and get ahead. I truly believe the Old Testament principle, those things were written for our admonition, to be the head, not the tail. And I truly believe if we walk in obedience to the Lord, it doesn't mean we won't lose everything because Jesus said you could lose everything. But if I lose everything, I don't want to be because I'm stupid or foolish. If I lose everything, I want to be because the Lord said I'm taking it from you and asking you to give it to me now. Spring of 89 is remembered in my life for my wife and I losing our son on January 1st of 1989. But it was spring of 89 where the Lord spoke to my heart clearly. I took your son and now I'm asking you, will you give me your son? That was probably the most important thing the Lord's ever asked me in my entire life. Because in letting go of my son to the Lord, I was free to go forward with the Lord and always trust in the Lord. If you can trust the Lord with your your son in eternity, you can trust the Lord with your future with Jesus until eternity. The Shunammite woman had already given up her dreams of having a son. Her son had already died and been restored. So the famine, it's just, it's just the next, it's just the latest thing. To let go of her house is nothing. She'd already let go of her son. It says in the earlier part of 2 Kings, 1 Kings, that, excuse me, 2 Kings, that they had employees, they had field workers. I mean, when they left, when she took her elderly husband, her older husband, and her son, and they went to the land of Philistines. No, not the Philistines. Yes, the Philistines. Who knows what happened to the employees? But she had to walk away from that house for seven years knowing that squatters could come, and maybe there was a squatter law that allowed them to claim it after two years into the famine. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh, blessed be the Lord. We have a song for it, and it's in the book of Job. It's all the Lord's. It's not about the squatters. It's about the king over the universe. It's never about the squatters. The world's got way more takers than givers, so don't be surprised when people take. It's about the heart of the giver and how they respond and how they grow in and through it, be like Christ, eternal vision, and walk in wisdom through the life experiences. The book of James says that faith without works is dead. And in the famine, the first step of our faith is the first step to do whatever it is the Lord's shown us to do. And in her case, it was this, arise and go. See, she had, it was, she had to react. She had to move. She had to give up the house. Some of you sold your house at a good time, some not so good of a time, right? That's how it works, ebb and flow, real estate. She didn't get to sell her house at a good time. She had to leave her house. If you're starving to death, the house is no good. You have to go where there's food. To the land of the Philistines. How humbling as an Israelite. But we also know with famines in the Old Testament that for Israel, they would be chastening for disobedience. And since the kings of the north were not walking with the Lord, it would stand to reason that the evil in the land that was allowed and, and uh, expanded under the, the house of Ahab affected her. I don't want to be affected by evil kings and evil queens doing things in our land, do you? 
I mean, do you want them to wreck what you've worked hard for? Of course not. But you know what? They could. So just resolve right away not to let it affect your headspace, your heart, your faith, and your kingdom vision. You can never let the people that you have no control over, who have control over you, upset you. And if you can learn that lesson before you're 60, good for you, because you're ahead of me. It took me COVID to realize, these people, they're going to do what they're going to do. What I need to do is make sure I'm looking at the man in the mirror, and I'm focused on what I do control. And if I live, I live. If I die, I die. And if I, I'm free, I'm free. If I'm incarcerated, I'm incarcerated. Light became very clear for me during COVID. And I hope it did for you. It certainly brought eternity in front of us for various reasons. That first step, man, faith thought works is dead. When we come and we don't know, we fall back on what we do know. And if it's an economic hardship in our life or in our society, in our state, in our country, or the whole planet, listen, we know God wants to become more like Christ. And we know he wants to have an eternal kingdom and set our treasures in heaven. And we know that common sense is the best sense. So we're going to seek the kingdom. That's, that's, it's, it's the first step. Action. This is, hey, we're going to do the best we can. And by the way, it brings us to the second thing. The next thing, because we had the first step of her faith is arise, and she arose. It's like, hey, arise, okay, go. So she's moving, action, activity. Then the second thing we see is where it says in verse one and three, uh, excuse me, one and seven. Look, look at this phrase. How's this for instruction from the Lord? Go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can. Stay wherever you can. Like I travel across the country with my wife. I don't like to stay wherever I can. I like to stay at Holiday Inn Express in Las Cruces, or Fort Stockton, or Ozona, or on the east side of San Antonio. Stay wherever you can. Like, what does that mean? That's like Joseph and Mary going to Nazareth. Stay wherever you can. I don't know about you, but I like to know where I'm staying. Jennifer and I, we've got it dialed in when we drive across the country. Hey, it's here, it's, you know, it's here, 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 here. These, that's where the Starbucks are, you know, we know when there's traffic in Houston, when there's not. It's like, listen, I don't like wherever you can. I don't drive across country like wherever you can. But you know, faith sometimes is wherever you can. This is faith. Faith is the substance of things so far, the evidence not yet seen. This is faith. Wherever you can is faith. They don't know. She's arising with her elderly husband and her miracle son, and off they go to the land of Philistines. And the husband's like, oh, honey, what, 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 what do the men of God say? Where are we staying? He said, wherever you can. Well, well, like, can't we go to AAA and get a better plan than that? Honey, he said. Honey, he said, wherever you can. <laughs> can I spell it out for you in Hebrew with no vowels? <laughs> wherever you can is wherever you can. How many of you felt like the last three years, wherever you can? However you can. <laughs> Whatever you can. However you can. Okay, find a way. That's just another way. Wherever you can is another way of saying, find a way. F-A-W. Find a way. Proverbs, a wise man scales the city wall and takes the city. Just, honey, I'll say it again. As you're in a tent in the middle of nowhere in Philistine land, he said, wherever you can. Well, how are we going to eat? He said, wherever you can. It's the next thing, because wherever you can, when you wake up and it's wherever you can, it's quite simple. It, it should definitely help your prayer life, too. When all you have from the Lord is this day and wherever you can, however you can, 
that should get you up early. Like no one's sleeping in when the next step is wherever you can with the Lord. That'll sharpen your focus. When you don't know where you're living, how you're going to feed your family, that's no time to be sleeping in. It's wherever you can. And I thought about this. She has wherever you can. And then later on in verse 3, when she returned, it said it came to pass at the end of seven years, the woman returned from the land and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Think about this. There's a day when Elisha comes to her and says, hey, arise, go, stay wherever you can. So you know for sure to arise, but you don't know where you're going, but get going. Seven years of silence, and then here in verse 3, on a morning, people think about this. You ever gone to court over a legal dispute? On a morning where you could lose a whole good night's sleep, not to mention months worth of good night's sleep over this, seven years she's gone. And now she's going to try and reclaim her property. She's going to go before the king. Remember when Elijah said, you want, you want an appearance for the king? She's like, what's that? What do I need an appearance for the king before? But now she needs an appearance before the king. So think about this. Seven years of living by faith amongst the Philistines. She knows the famine's over. So we have the one day Elijah speaks to her. Then we have seven years of silence, like David in the wilderness, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, after he's 12 years old until he starts his ministry. Nothing but silence for Mary. Almost two decades of silence for Mary. Wow, a lot happens in those silent years, doesn't it? Have you had silent years? I feel like my five years on the East Coast were like the silent years. I was just off the grid. God just got you somewhere, you and your spouse, you and your kids, whatever, and he's just working in you. You're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not on social media, you're just, you're just off the grid. And he's, there's seven years of silence just grinding amongst the Philistines during a famine, seven years. We don't even know what happened. But I do know this. When I don't know what's happening, it does help my morning devotion with the Lord. It gets me up quicker, makes me sharper to hear, respond, and obey what the Lord's saying. When you're going to bed and there's things that would unsettle you for the next day, that's when you really need, like David in the Psalms talked about, to meditate upon the Lord and his word at nighttime. Give it to the Lord Sleep in peace, like Peter, when he's going to be executed the next day and he's sleeping in prison. The angel had to wake him up. Like, that's faith, right? She gets up on this day. She gets up on this day and she's going to the king's court to ask for her property back. It's hers in the first place. In Israel, if you had property, it came from your parents, which came from the Lord. That property is the Lord's property that he gave to her descendants over a period of centuries. And she received it. She received it amongst her tribe, amongst her family, and it's hers. It doesn't belong to the squatters. It doesn't belong to the Philistines. It belongs to her. But because it belongs to her, where did she get it? From the Lord. So ultimately, it belongs to the Lord. So it's not really about Joash and the king's court or any of that stuff. But it is intimidating to go before a king, isn't it? She's going before the king. This is a judge. A superior court judge. This is a civil case. He's, this is my property. They're living in it. Well, how long have you been gone? We have squatter laws in Los Angeles County. How long have you been gone? Well, what's it even matter? This is my property. God gave this to me. See, you could go over all these things in your mind the night before if you're the Shunammite woman. Mark Twain said this. I've been through some terrible things in my life, and some of them actually happened. 
Can you relate to that one? Yeah. Or as Keith Randolph said, who's here tonight in his book, Secrets of Happiness, worry, all it ever changes is you for the worse. Jesus said it like this. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. So she could have been walking to the king's court looking at the birds of the air in a prequel of the time of Christ, right? Because everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come. So she used to be walking to, go, walking to go see the king. Is she looking at the birds of the air and being reminded of God's faithfulness to her? The God who gave her the miracle son, who raised the miracle son, who sustained her during the famine for seven years. Who knows what she's thinking from the years of silence. But Jesus, in the fullness of things, said to us, the church, the birds, they don't sow nor reap nor gather barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his statute? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the leaves of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And I might add, what will we say before the king? Will he give us our house back? But for all these things the Gentiles and non-believers seek, your heavenly Father knows that what you need all these things. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, the next thing in our life is today with the Lord. It's simplicity. It's living by faith. The next thing, get up, get your hustle on, go to work, do what you need to do. Find the job, do this, figure it out. College age, kids applying for colleges, get in, get out. The next thing is the next thing. My life has been very simplified, how I categorize things, and it's just the next thing. You're going to write a book? Hey, you got to open the Google Doc, start writing. It all began in Cleveland in 1961. And just, that's the next thing. So the next thing, as it comes about with the Lord, it's going to involve faith. And we're going to learn to trust in the Lord as we go from glory to glory. We're we're growing in faith, and we're seeing God's faithfulness in our life. So who knows what the Shunammite woman was thinking that day when she was going to Joash's court, but I hope she was singing a song. One of David's Psalms of Ascent, maybe, huh? All those beautiful, you know, the Psalms of Ascent that they have in the book of Psalms. Like, there's no mention of her husband, but her son is with her. The miracle son is exhibit A of God's faithfulness. So she does have her son with her as she goes. That probably strengthens your faith, right? When you can look at God's faithfulness in your past beside you, it gives you strength for God's faithfulness today in front of you. The son certainly would have been a flashpoint of faith for her in what she's facing that day. But off they go to the king's court. We should sleep well. If we're grinding in the silent years with famine... Let there be clarity and simplicity. Let our focus be on the things that really matter, not what people can take from us, but the things that really matter. Faith in God, your family, and the fruit of walking with the Lord. To grow. David grew in silence. Mary grew in silence. Joseph, in the Old Testament, grew in his silence in Egypt. So WG, body of Christ, sleep well in the famine. Sleep well. Sleep well in a world of takers, 
know that God is over everything, which brings us to the final thing. So we have the first step, the next thing, and then we have the most important thing. Truly, it's so basic, but truly to trust in the Lord. To truly trust in the Lord. See, I've been in ministry again for 35 years, and it's so simple when you trust in the Lord, and it's so arduous and difficult when you do not. Why do you think Jesus took it back to childlike faith? He truly wants us to trust in his goodness over us like our children trust in us, especially when they were younger, how they trusted in us. Oh, I was thinking about Luke today, my youngest. There was a season in Luke's life, Jennifer was working at Calvary Distribution and somehow like she'd just gone back to work after not working for 15 years and with the kids and all this, but I, had a, I would have Friday morning with Luke and we, we'd go to the beach and stuff and we do all these things, and it was a very special time. It was when he had a half day. He had a half day of school, and he'd go in the afternoon, and we'd, we'd have the morning. And I remember going to Denny's, and we'd get like the, he liked the pancake with the face on it. Remember those at Denny's, the pancake with the face? And I could cry. When Luke was with me, he was never worried about how I was driving, where I was driving, where we are going, what we are doing, how he was going to, would he be able to have his pancake? Did his father love him? Was his home safe? It was all there instinctively. He knew he had a good, good father that loves him very much. And we have a good, good father that loves us very much, more than we'll ever know, more than earthly fathers can love their children, which is quite powerful. And we'll take another level, more than earthly grandparents can love their grandchildren, which is a whole other level. His love for us is so great. And truly, what the famine is to teach us is to trust the Lord always, to trust the Lord with all of our heart, to lean not on our understanding, but to know that God has it. In, the, in verse 5 and 6, when she shows up at court, can you imagine going to court, you don't have a lawyer, self-representation, and you walk in there, and there's Gehazi. Wow. There's the king, like, whoa, the king. And Gehazi is talking about you. See, God goes before us. That's what we need to know. God goes before us. He knows the hairs on your head. He goes before you. He gives favor. He prepares the way. He loves his children and he goes before you and before me. He puts things in our heart, stirs us up, and he goes before us to set the way so we can be fruitful and successful and what he's entrusting to us and calling us to do. You know my story about going to Virginia. We're going back here to Planet Church in 1991. I'm driving across country with Jennifer. Hannah's not even one and stitches the dog. I had a five-day trip. It was seven days. By the time I got to Virginia Beach, I wasn't sure I was even saved, let alone going to be a pastor. That road trip beat us up like there's no tomorrow. And we got to Virginia Beach, and I just needed food. I was low blood sugar. It was early afternoon. And I walked of all the restaurants in Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach is a large area. It's the largest city in America as far as uh, mass. Well, actually behind Jacksonville, but it's huge. And there's a half a million people there back at that time. Lots of restaurants. The restaurant I pick is a sandwich shop, and the guy working there is a surfer, and he recognizes Joey Baran. And he's so excited that Joey Baran has come to his restaurant, his sandwich shop. But then he says, my friend, oh, my friend worked for the Daily Pilot, the biggest paper in Virginia Beach. He needs to write a story in the religious section, but he's not religious. He could interview you because you're here to start a church. And he did. And it was a huge story, and lots of people came to the church, and the church grew from that article. The Lord goes before us in all things. She shows up like, 
I hope she, I hope she showed up in confidence because he went before her and the kings, the kings are like, there's, there they are. That's the kid. Look, he grew. It's been seven years. You're like, there they are. This is them. And the king's like, really? Well, okay. Hey, you need a lawyer. This is your lawyer right here. Hey, make sure she gets her property back, boot those people out, and make sure they pay everything they earned from her property when she was gone. See, our father's a good, good father. Our God's a blessing God, and his thoughts for you are not thoughts of evil, but thoughts to give us all a future and a hope. If Christmas has any one theme to it, it's a future and a hope through Jesus Christ coming to the world to save us from our sins to rise from the grave for our hope and justification, to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father after his ascension as our great high priest and to come in glory to bring to fruition all the redemption of the entire universe. Yes, WG, body of Christ, we are the most blessed of all people on, in the human experience because we're in a covenant relationship when we give our life to Christ. He allows famines. He wants us to grow in the famine, personal or broad, he wants us to be more ready for eternity, personal or broad scope, through a famine. So I just tell us, let us grow in our famine. When Peter left everything, you said to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything for you. When the rich and Euler walked away from Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, how much more in this life? I'll just actually read the text from Luke. We'll close with this right here. He says this. Peter said, we've left all and followed you. And so Jesus said, as surely I say to you, there's no one who has left house or parents or brother or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life.